Vaxi's musical podcast. Over the last few years, we've looked at a lot of very influential music by a lot of very influential people. Some of these artists would go on to sell millions of copies. Others may have only sold dozens, but that's not always the point. Sometimes an artist inspires others through the music that they've released, and there are also times when that music inspires others to release the most important music of their careers. Occasionally, you'll find someone who does more than just inspire from a distance. Sometimes they actually have a hand in creating something astonishing with somebody else through collaboration or production or by providing guidance in a way that makes something incredible, timeless, and completely unique. It's a very small group of people that can claim to have the sort of vision or the kind of bottomless connectivity to their creative process to do all those things and often all at once. For example, David Bowie would come to mind. And if you've been paying attention, David Bowie's name gets tossed up an awful lot on this podcast, like an awful lot. But the other name that gets mentioned almost as much as David Bowie's would be that of Brian Eno. It would be Eno who would inspire David Bowie in a way that would change and regenerate the course of Bowie's career. Without Eno, Bowie's influential Berlin trilogy might not have taken the same direction had Eno not been a part of that collaboration. Albums like Low, Heroes, and The Lodger, these were all albums that are still considered to be among the most groundbreaking of Bowie's career. Would he have gotten there without Brian Eno? Maybe, maybe not. Either way, it's impossible to understate the importance of what Eno meant to those records. Brian Eno's career is a long and fascinating one. It's a career that almost defies description because Brian Eno isn't simply a musician. In fact, Eno would argue he's not really a musician at all. He's an artist, an artist that provokes a level of creativity from himself and in others that's probably been unmatched since perhaps the Beatles. And that may seem like a pretty bold statement, and it is, but I'm hardly the first person to make that comparison. Because when you consider the depth and sheer creative volume of what Brian has been responsible for over the last 50 years, you begin to realize that we're talking about arguably one of the most towering musical innovators in history. So where do you start? How do you pick just one record from Brian Eno's massive discography with 27 solo records, 26 musical collaborations, production credits, and some of the most influential albums in history to his countless innovations combining art and sound and technology? From his deep involvement into ambient music to his countless art installations to the use of technology to push creativity to its very limits and beyond, where do you even begin? Now, I could have chosen from a whole stack of records. I could have picked his 1975 album, Another Green World. I could have chosen one of the two records he recorded with Roxy Music, of which he was a founding member. I could have chosen one of his albums of ambient music, like Music for Airports from 1978. But instead, I chose his 1974 debut solo album, Here Come the Warm Jets, from Baxi's enormous record collection on Baxi's musical podcast. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts, with locations in both Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. In fact, they're not just a dispensary, they're a destination. Visit CannaProvisions.com. Adults 21, please, and please consume responsibly.
So what makes Brian Eno so unique and important? One, he has no real formal musical training. Secondly, he claims he doesn't really know how to play any musical instruments other than synthesizers and tape recorders. And thirdly, much of his music is incredibly experimental and intentionally non-commercial. What Brian Eno does know how to do is how to discover a conceptual idea and then apply it, sometimes unconventionally, with sounds and available technology to support those initial concepts and allowing for mistakes to guide him to the next level. Now, you might say, well, that sounds like a pretty shitty and inconsistent way of making music. And for some people, that might be true. Perhaps that sort of freeform way of thinking would be too dangerous for some, maybe too inconvenient or unproductive. But for Eno, the calculated risk of chaos often created conflicts that were far more interesting than the conventional music that you might have been expecting to hear. When Brian Eno produced Remain in Light by Talking Heads in 1980, he chose to record individual pieces of music, percussion, guitars, vocals, and then assemble each part like pieces of a puzzle with not just the four members of the band, but with side musicians who played without entirely knowing for sure what they were playing too, all of which was added to complicated polyrhythms and tape loops in which songs were created by multi-layering each part. It's a method of creating music that was similar to the modular recording style used by Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys with good vibrations and pet sounds, but on steroids. The final result was one of the greatest pieces of musical production in history. And while I wouldn't dream of diminishing the important contributions of any of the members of Talking Heads in making that album, it's hard to imagine its greatness without the genius of Brian Eno. It's also one of the reasons why Brian Eno would produce four of their albums. So who is this guy? And why would you choose to record a record this way? Again, great art isn't always about convenience. More often than not, it's about the inconvenience that generates the highest level of creativity. That's what Brian Eno has always tried to accomplish since joining Roxy Music in 1970. At first, Eno was invited to play synthesizer in the band after a chance meeting with saxophone player Andy Mackay. Eno would record two albums with Roxy Music, but Eno was more interested in experimentation than with the glam rock crooning style of Brian Ferry. Eno was more interested in creating new sounds and using tape recorders as a musical instrument and running them through the soundboard during live performances. That sort of experimentation caused a power struggle between the two Bryans. The breaking point came when Eno would appear on stage dressed more flamboyantly than their lead singer, causing Ferry to feel upstaged. Finally, in 1973, Eno quit Roxy Music and ventured out on his own. Brian wasted almost no time mapping out his next move. Within a few months of leaving Roxy Music, Brian Eno began the first of multiple collaborations with guitarist Robert Fripp from King Crimson. Between Eno's experimentation with tape looping and Fripp's famous arpeggiated style of Frippatronics on guitar, they created the 1973 album No Pussyfooting. Recorded over the course of three days, Fripp and Eno created an album of richly experimental ambient music, a term and a concept that Eno would go on to coin several years later. And while the album was hardly a commercial success, artistically, No Pussyfooting has held its ground over the years. It would also shape and foreshadow much of what Eno would produce in the years to come. Soon after recording that record with Robert Fripp, Brian decided to begin organizing his first official solo album in September of 1973. After coming off the early commercial successes of Roxy Music, you might think a guy would produce something that would be built off that success. But that's not how Brian Eno thinks. Instead, Eno decided to take a totally experimental approach to making his first solo record. 
Rather than put together a backing band of like-minded musicians, he instead intentionally assembled a group of 16 artists that had nothing in common musically. Eno wanted to see where the incompatibility would take him by creating an atmosphere of creative chaos. This was a band that once again included Robert Fripp, but also his King Crimson bandmate, bass player John Wett. He also invited nearly all of his former Roxy Music bandmates, including Andy McKay, Phil Manzanera, and drummer Paul Thompson, plus guitar player Chris Spedding, Hawkwind drummer Simon King, bass player Busta Jones, and several others, including the gospel vocal group Sweet Feet. Again, this was all intentional in hopes of drawing conflict out of people and putting them in a unique and competitive situation. To understand how he managed this, you should also understand the other important development from Brian Eno known as Oblique Strategies. This was a project that Eno had been developing over a number of years. Oblique Strategies were a series of 100 cards in which each one expressed a different suggestion that was meant to stir up the creative process. Some cards would ask the reader to think at a different speed or move sections around or would ask the reader to consider old ideas or simplify new ones. It was an idea originally created by German visual artist Peter Schmidt in 1970. Eno developed that idea, doubled the number of cards, and then used them to achieve a broader range of creativity. Or sometimes they were used to clear up a creative block. Eventually, the oblique strategy cards would become available to the public in 1975, and since then, several revised editions have been released, and they're actually pretty effective in all kinds of applications. For the purposes of making music, Eno would use the same concepts to draw out individual creative possibilities for all 16 musicians. In fact, the first card drawn stated, Honor Thy Error as a Hidden Intention, which is exactly how Eno would go on to record the record, Here Come the Warm Jets, in September of 1973. The songs on the album were built from relatively simple but compelling melodies. Each song was constructed with complicated layers by stacking sounds on top of each other, compressing others, and turning the final mixes into something that was nearly unrecognizable to the very musicians who played on them. The arrangements had texture and complexity and were assembled in a way which had never been tried before. To keep the musicians focused, Eno would communicate his ideas by dancing through body language, feeling as though it'd be the most primal and visceral way to direct each musician as they recorded their parts. Lyrically, many of the songs were intentionally recorded to sound like gibberish. In fact, the original lyrics were nothing more than nonsense syllables that he sang from deep in his subconscious. He would then go back and reinterpret what he had sang into actual words and concepts. Then he would transpose them back into the song after the song had been largely completed as a final piece of the puzzle. Songs like Babies on Fire or Needle in the Camel's Eye or Driving Me Backwards or the Paw Paw Negro Blowtorch Sounds like nothing else recorded before or since, but yet there are elements of everything in these songs. Elements of pop, jazz, glam rock, synth rock, all mixed with an avant-garde nuance while at the same time being completely listenable with songs that are engaging and challenging, humorous and brilliant, all over Eno's impossibly nasal-sounding vocals. There's so much going on in this record that 48 years later, after it was released, people still find new things to discover and to be inspired by in each of these songs. For me, the highlight of the record is the song Babies on Fire. It's a song with a completely twisted plot line about a photo session involving a baby who's been set on fire in front of a group of laughing onlookers. It's a messed up idea, which was completely saved by the song's last line, all the instruments agree, her temperature is rising, but any idiot would know that. That's freaking genius. Here Come the Warm Jets would be released in January of 1974, 
and would be seen as a brilliant masterpiece of an album and recognized as one of the greatest debut solo records of the 1970s, which it is. But more importantly, this would be an album that would unlock new ways of recording, new genres of music, and new ways of listening to music in general. It wasn't just a great album. It was an essential one. Sadly, the tour for Here Come the Warm Jets would be cut short after Brian suffered a collapsed lung, yet he would be recording again by the end of the year. But while recovering, he began to experiment even further, making ambient music, and then eventually releasing it the following year. Since then, Brian Eno's career has taken multiple twists and turns, collaborating on or producing records with the likes of David Bowie, Talking Heads, Paul Simon, Genesis, U2, Ultravox, Coldplay, John Cale, Devo, Laurie Anderson, Sinead O'Connor, David Byrne, and many, many others. Eno's work, his vision, and his endless creativity have amounted to an astonishing body of work, and his influence on popular culture, music, technology, have been present ever since. He's done everything from advancing production techniques that are still used today. He's in part responsible for introducing world music to the West. He's developed musical therapy initiatives for orphaned children in areas of the world that have been ravaged by war. There have been asteroids named after Brian Eno. And of course, there is the music, and a whole lot of it. And his 1974 album, Here Come the Warm Jets, is an astonishing and essential place to start. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, thanks to Canna Provisions for their support. You can support them in either of their locations in Holyoke or Lee, Massachusetts, or online at cannaprovisions.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can email me at baxandrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And again, thanks for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.